Hello again friends, thank you for joining me. This is Sarah from Weird Horizon and today we're going to carry on talking about Hollow Earth Theory and how it came to be what it is today. Thank you as usual for joining me, it really does mean the world that actually anyone is listening is just mind-blowing. But I hope you enjoyed this one and if you want to engage with me between uploads you can find me on social media as Weird Horizon. You can find me on Twitter and you can find me on my newly created Instagram, which is Weird Horizon Podcast. So I hope to see you there, share some spooky content. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this one. So today we're going to be building on our foundation of historical hollow earth theories. We will be talking briefly about just one more scientific name that has an influence over the theory and how the theory is received. And then we'll be moving on to what is most probably the driving force behind modern hollow earth theory being John Sims Jr. and his sort of popular theory for the people. But first, so Sir John Leslie was a Scottish physicist and mathematician, most known for his studies on heat. In 1829, he proposed a hollow earth in his Elements of Natural Philosophy. Now, some have claimed that it was Leslie who suggested that the hollow interior of the earth contained two little suns. This idea of two little suns, which you'll find in Jules Verne's work, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, is kind of a hallmark of earlier hollow earth theory, and it's claimed that it originated here in Sir John Leslie's proposal of 1829. Leslie, in his work, extrapolated from what we know of the density of common materials and how they change under compression, and he was trying to think of how they may change as they get closer to the centre of the Earth under gravity. It goes as such, the theory of the compression of bodies carried to its full extent might give rise to several bold but striking speculations regarding the internal constitution of our globe. It follows, therefore, that if the great body of our Earth consisted of any such materials as we are acquainted with, its mean density would very far surpass the limits assigned by our most accurate investigations. It seems, therefore, to follow conclusively that our planet must have a very widely cavernous structure when air becomes denser than gold, It is hard to conjecture what transmutations this plastic fluid must undergo. The bowels of the earth may contain substances thus transformed, bearing no longer any resemblance to their aspect on its surface. So just in case you have any trouble following it, basically Leslie is saying that the density of substances must change as they get closer to the centre of the earth as gravity acts more and more upon them and he's saying that knowledge that we currently have on the proposed weight and density of the earth it cannot be made up of any of the materials that we know of now because even materials such as water when they are acted upon at the centre of the earth the density is so greatly increased that even if the earth were made of water he says it would be much heavier than science leads us to believe. Now, he was not wrong in this supposition. He was right that the Earth had to be made up of a very specific makeup of materials to fit the models in terms of what we believe it weigh and what we believe the mass of the Earth to be. 
he was right in that he observed density of the Earth relied on this specific makeup of materials. But nowadays, this density problem is solved by supposing that a large portion of the interior, namely the core of the Earth, again, is made up of a molten metal alloy. Quoting a little bit here from a scientific explanation on it, nickel-iron alloy, under the conditions expected in a non-hollow Earth, would have densities ranging, which brings the average density of Earth to its observed value. He was right in supposing that there was a sort of problem to be solved here, but his potential answers on the other side of the equation were supposing, okay, maybe the Earth has a large cavernous structure inside and that would bring down the average density. But in reality, it's the core of the Earth is made up of a nickel-iron alloy. I don't know enough about celestial mechanics or geology or physics to say why there were two diametrically opposed theories on the density of the Earth relatively close together, but I think it's a very interesting little tidbit. And I would like to mention that as far as I can see, Leslie did not at any point go so far as to say this interior Earth, this cavernous space inside the Earth was inhabited, and nor did he give any sort of suggestions on who or what it might be inhabited by. He just supposed that the Earth might be partially hollow to fit scientific models on the Earth's density. So yeah, we see this a fair amount in science. You see the science of the time, 90% but not 100% explaining how we interpret the world. So we're aware of a partial picture. We're aware of a change in density coming over materials, but we are not aware of the full makeup of the planet that fits our ideas of its density. Like Euler with his celestial mechanics, we are aware of mass issue when plotting the paths of the moon and the sun and the earth. We are aware that we have a 90% fit model, but it's not our 100% fit. It's supposed by some that changing the density of the earth could help to fit this model. Same with Edmund Halley. He could observe a difference between the measured poles. This was something we knew about. We knew that they changed. We knew that they changed regularly. But the way that they changed varied. This was an observed truth. There was something large influencing these readings, something to do with the structure of the Earth. Now, of course, he supposed maybe it was hollow, but we know now that most of these sort of issues in terms of the observed reality of our Earth versus the science, most of these can be solved by a core of the Earth of molten metal. But it's just interesting that we see this pattern over and over again, this sort of 90% fit from the science, and then in the 10% there is a supposition, oh, okay, maybe the Earth is partly cavernous, maybe it is sort of sponge-like, or maybe it is fully cavernous with supporting life inside. None of the scientific theories imply that this cavernous interior is there for any purpose. It's there out of physical scientific necessity in that it would fit the science. There's no idea as of it being there for any theological purpose, any religious purpose, any military or even political purpose. It just exists as a sort of unbiased fact. There's no reason put forward for why this is hitherto undiscovered. It is separate from the sort of highly political mesh we see of later hollow earth theories. 
we move on now to popular theories, i.e. non-scientific theories, theories from just the everyman, the regular guy. And as you may have already gathered from this incomplete and quite piecemeal rundown of the scientific hollow earth hypotheses, that the theory itself didn't directly spring from any one scientist or any one theory. The ideas we think of when we think of hollow earth are a large inhabitable cavern full of lush greenery, and a utopian society, or an advanced civilization, or maybe even Godzilla. These theories don't come from the science, although proponents of hollow earth like to use them to support their belief. The theory itself is arguably not even literary or religious in nature, but I would say that it was brought most thoroughly to the public attention by American army officer, trader and lecturer John Sims Jr. When in 1818 John Sims Jr. issued the first of a series of circulars and broadsheets proclaiming his theory that the earth was hollow and habitable within, this theory seemed to come from nowhere. At least to those who read it, it was a fresh and original theory. As as we've previously discussed, there were aspects of hollow earth theories in certain scientific circles, but most were now retracted and not generally publicly accessible, even when they weren't retracted. But Sims promoted his theory to the everyman, whereas previous theories were mostly only accessible as part of scholarly publications, letters or journals, and posited themselves as for the scientific educated reader. Now circular number one reads as follows. To all the world I declare that the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it opens at the poles 12 or 16 degrees, i.e. 4,000 to 6,000 miles wide. I pledge my life in support of this trust, and am ready to explore the hollow if the world will support and aid me in my undertaking. I ask 100 brave companions, well equipped, to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeers and sleighs in the ice of the frozen sea. I engage we find a warm and rich land, stoked with thrifty vegetables and animals, if not men, on reaching one degree northward of latitude 82, we will return in the succeeding spring. Sims not only outlined most of his theory in just a few words, but stated his life on proving it, and gave a suggestion on how to test his hypothesis through an expedition to the Poles. He also attached a certificate professing his sanity, and had the circular duplicated and distributed widely to every college, municipal government, senator, and eminent scientist in the country, and then some more copies to go to every major foreign university as well. His proofs, published in subsequent circulars, later renaming the, them to memoirs, brought in several scientific proofs made up of a mess of scientific readings. Now, somewhat like Kircher, Sims brought in all that he knew of natural philosophy, geography, exploration, and just various topics he had interest in, and drew them into one unifying theory. But he put it out there, he wrote his circulars 
with the kind of methods of talking that are familiar from scientific writing, which he clearly had some knowledge of. He wrote as if he was writing a scientific paper, but with an everyday tongue, and his lectures regularly sold out lecture halls. So Sims very cleverly knew how to market his theories to get people to listen. He chose a honestly ingenious <laughs> method of getting this out there and just giving it to everyone. Everyone who was anyone in the scientific, political, anyone who had any power was given one of these circulars. And for that reason, just because it was so widely circulated at his own cost, it got people talking about it. I guess it was as close as you could get to a sort of viral theory in 1818. Um, it was very, very ahead of his time in that way. Now, each circular built upon the theories of the previous ones and outlined in more and more detail the geography and the formation of the interior earth, um, including things like hidden seas and mountains. Sims left behind many more supporting private papers as well, with instructions that they be destroyed should the information found within them be erroneous. So there's a really nice sort of pattern here of him, again, believing in the science and believing that wrong theories should be subsumed if they are found to be incorrect, which I really, really like. I think a lot of people like to paint Sims as someone who just wanted to force this idea down people's throat and didn't care if it was wrong, but he very clearly did care if it was wrong. He wanted to prove this theory. He didn't just want people to believe it. He wanted proof, and if proof was not to be found, he wanted his papers to be destroyed. He did not want to spread erroneous information. And so, following on in this great scientific tradition, it could be that these papers have been destroyed by the family, as, as we will soon discover. When the poles were reached, these holes that Sims alluded to as the entrance to interior Earth were not found. So they reached those latitudes and the holes were not there, and so the interior earth was not found. Now Sim's education was mostly self-governing, and coming from the books his father brought home to him. Described as a child as a bookworm, he was just absorbing all that he could from the volumes selected by his parents. From what we know, though, there is no particular volume that served as the inspiration for this theory. We don't know, for example, if he had access to Kircher's Mundus Subterraneus, but if I had to guess, I would think this would be excellent fodder for a modern Holloway theory with all of its fantastic illustrations and just, again, true multidisciplinary approach to things. But we do not know. We do not know specifically what volumes Sims had access to, but we can sort of trace back some of the ideas that he has in his modern theory and sort of suppose where they may have come from, whether that is truly accurate or not. Judge John Sims, which was Sims's uncle, seemed to have been quite a regular fixture in his life and he again travelled widely and brought back tales of adventure and just a sprawling world that captured the imagination of young Sims. So we can imagine a little bit about young John Sims Jr., greatly intrigued by the world around him and taking in all the information that he can come across and building them into his own personal theory of the world and how the world works. All the while just fertilised by these 
wild, exciting stories from his uncle about a world that he is quite unfamiliar with, but I'm sure one day wishes to explore for himself. This great, enterprising, exploratory spirit is a big part of this theory, I would say. You can sort of hear it in the writing of just the the sheer excitement of going out there and proving something and sort of carving out a little bit of the world for yourself. Nevertheless, the response to his circulars was a systematic disproving of all of the points discussed. But even as people were disproving his points, many held a begrudging respect for his doggedness and his energy in this matter, saying that it would be beneficial to send him there, even just because if he can deflect his energy towards this cause, he may achieve something worthwhile, even if it's not the proof that he wants. So a famous response to his circular says, If the region he goes in search of should prove a fairy land, still his enterprising spirit would be likely to render us better acquainted with the Arctic zone and might possibly confer on him the honour of solving the problem which has hitherto proved so difficult, the actual existence of a Northwest Passage. It is this enterprising, very American spirit, I think, that people admire in Sims, and this self-made man who was by now swapping correspondence with some of the leading minds of his time. And despite the lack of critical acceptance, Sims Hole, so this idea of the holes at the poles, holes of the poles, certainly entered into popular discourse very quickly. Ohio historian Henry Howes commented from 1900 that Sims Hole was a phrase more or less on everyone's tongue. The papers in the decade between 1820 and 1830 were more or less full of Sims Hole. If one suddenly disappeared, the reply was often, and with what a grin, oh, he's gone, I expect, down into Sims Hole. And to this day, there is a monument to him and his theories which stands in Hamilton, Ohio, and cementing him in legend as an outsider theorist. And again, I'm going to quote from Chaplow's thesis, which I have used extensively, a reference to this will be in the show notes. The Sims affair played an important role in the development of American science. Sims and his followers popularised the idea of polar exploration and helped generate public support for federally funded exploration and scientific research. Moreover, through his correspondence and interaction with leading scientific figures of the day, he may have helped catalyse the movement away from the strident empiricism that dominated American science in the early 19th century. He, as an individual, managed to get attention to his theories, and what's more, he seemed to have been responsible for setting the investigations into motion to try to prove or even disprove them. And funnily enough, the lack of success or lack of apparent success from this federally funded expedition may kind of be the little schism after which hollow earth theory branches off from an alternative but still scientific view to a rallying point for conspiracy theorists and the kind of theory that we see it as today. But as we've said, Sims even though he was not a scientist, was very much still wrapping up his theory in the guise of science. So I'm going to quote a little bit from Dwayne Griffin's paper on Sim's theory of the Earth's internal structure called Hollow Inhabitable Within. 
Sim's adoption of the tropes and outward appearance of science allowed him to impart an air of authority and legitimacy to his theory. These borrowings from science are almost always lacking the critical and reflective modes of practice and thought that characterise orthodox science, but they impart an air of authority and legitimacy that can be compelling, provided we don't scrutinise them too carefully. Now, I'm aware that I've talked a lot about the theory, but I haven't actually outlined a huge amount about what the theory itself says. So, Sim's theory on the structure of the Earth went as such. The interior of the Earth was variously described as being comprised of five, and then later down the line, three, hollow concentric spheres. So, think of Edmund Halley, each accessible from the next, and with an inner light and heat source, an internal sun which made life possible. Following on from this, Sims suggested that the two auroras, Aurora Borealis to the north and Aurora Australis to the south, were merely reflections of that inner light. So again, similar to Halley in this way, it may have been superficial similarities that made it easier for people to tie together this sort of continuity of hollow earth scientific thinking. Or again, it could be that Sims himself had access to Kircher or Halley or even Euler's work and again drew the same conclusions that modern hollow earth theorists do. But without access to his personal library, which nobody has, we can't really know what he has or hadn't read. The only person who knew what he had and hadn't read was himself. But nonetheless, there are notable startling similarities between his writing and the theories we've spoken about previously. Again, quoting from the Chaplow thesis, Although Sims was not the first to propose a hollow earth, there are no confirmed sources or inspirations for his various theories, which appeared fully formed and with little change throughout his remaining life. But it kind of goes without saying that not everyone was positive in their estimation of Sims, and in fact, some treated this dogged determination as more of a character flaw than a positive. Sims' whole, as much as it entered into common parlance as a bit of a joke, was also sometimes used as shorthand to imply that rather there was a hole in Sims's head, so used as shorthand to imply that he himself may be not altogether there. We can't, of course, know how widespread this term was, or how playful it was or it wasn't, but this doggedness is something that people associate with his theories from both sides, the believers in them and the detractors. Sims did not live to see his polar exploration, the first being conducted to the South Pole three years after his death. But it has been supposed that Sims's greatest legacy is probably the body of fiction set in or some way connected to the whole which bears his name, i.e. Sims' whole. Sims' legacy was not a body of scientific thought that directly stemmed from his work, but the idea of the Sims' whole and the opportunity it posed in writing subterranean fiction or utopian fiction, that it might represent an entrance to a world superior to our own, and without the costs involved in space travel or the mysticism required, for a belief in the astral plane or some paranormal parallel or mirror world. Now, the number of hollow earth stories dropped off drastically after 1910, largely because polar exploration revealed no Sims hole. But for a time, the idea captured the popular imagination and did, as we say, spur on a federally backed expedition to find Sims hole. 
So let's talk a little bit about that expedition now. We're going to be talking about the United States Exploring Expedition of 1838 to 1842. Now, as early as 1822, Sims had petitioned Congress for support and funding for an expedition to explore his theory. And he eventually received some votes in support. But however, this idea was tabled and it wasn't further pursued. His second and his third petition went similarly. He gained some support, but the idea never really got somewhere. However, by his third petition, Sims had gained some support from a Jeremiah Reynolds. Now, Reynolds was the editor of the Spectator newspaper, and he became an early convert to Sims's theory. In 1824, he was so committed to this theory that he sold his paper and joined Sims in travelling the country and lecturing on the theory. Reynolds gained support from the cabinet under President John Quincy Adams in 1828, and he was permitted to address Congress on the subject of an exploring expedition. This Poe's expedition, though, was, again, eventually cancelled by President Andrew Jackson in 1829 due to a lack of funds. So over and over again, this idea sort of gets to the point that it's put in front of people of power and it gets tabled or it gets pushed over, over and over again. But as you may have already heard by now, there's some sort of friends in high places. So there is a chance of this gaining traction. Now, over time, Reynolds decided to concentrate the efforts on the relatively unexplored pole of the South Pole. Trying to persuade people to go to the South Pole for any reason was a bit easier than trying to persuade people to go to the fairly well-explored North Pole in search of a large entrance to the interior Earth that most people are gonna know is not there by now. So he decides to concentrate on the South Pole. And this eventually became the United States Exploring Expedition of 1838-1842 under Lieutenant Charles Wilkes. Now, Sims had died in 1829, still convinced of his theory to his last day, and still focused on accessing his hollow earth via the hole at the North Pole. He had spent the last 11 years of his life writing, campaigning, and utterly convinced of his vision and that it could be accessed through the North Pole. But Reynolds, like Sim, was a bit of an orator and he knew how to persuade people to his cause. So he took Sims's ideas and ran with them, even after Sims's death. This and the popularity of Simsonia, which is a piece of fiction which we will talk about later, and Poe's attention on the two of them all led a kind of credence to it that meant people paid attention to Reynolds. And as such, he finally got what he wanted. Reynolds went along and formed part of the science team. Now, the three ships sailed with private funding, but with tacit government sanction, and they had a combined purpose of exploration, science, and commerce. So it goes without saying, obviously, that they really didn't find a lot in terms of they didn't find any huge holes. They did find some fossils and they did find some seals, but in our story on Hollow Earth, they really did not find an awful lot on this expedition. But as I hinted at then, by this point, I think more people were aware of Sims through the tree work that it inspired than they were of the scientific expeditions that it inspired, even though the expeditions did come to pass in the end. 
The literary response to Sims's work was immediate and widespread. Even if he'd probably have preferred it had been a scientific response, response from scientists with scientific papers ideally supporting him. Indeed, many of the academics reached by the circulars engaged with it in a sort of like winking amusement in that they replied to him and enjoyed it in a way laughing along with their readers and that they'd all been aware of these most widespread rumours in theory and thought them all, of course, ludicrous. But it and the publication of the intrinsically linked Simsonia, which we'll talk about in more detail later, codified a way of writing about subterranean, and specifically Simsian subterranean fiction, that was immediately taken up by authors, both obscure and well-known. By this point, there were different ideas of kinds of hollow earth. So the French scholar and sci-fi collector Pierre Versin offers two types of hollow earth locations for fictional settings. And this is again taken from the excellent thesis from L.I. Chaplow. The first type of location is Gruyere, referring to a depiction of the earth like a holy Swiss cheese with one or more caverns, and a calabasse, denoting a depiction of the earth as similar to a hollow gourd, literally a hollow earth. So, as we mentioned, there are already these different ideas of different kinds of hollow earth, different ways that the idea can be explored. Sims had created a unique literary world for people to populate with its characters, a world with an explicit entrance point, explicit location, and a kind of ticking clock counting down to its discovery. He had put in place the impetus to find this entrance to the hollow earths, and he had again suggested ways to prove it with these interesting arctic expeditions so there was just really rich fodder for storytelling here for contemporary story about a potentially utopian interior earth now in 1821 jacques colin de plancy i'm really sorry for my french pronunciation there wrote voyage où sont le terre it begins so Voyage to the Centre of the Earth, so begins with an explicit reference to Sims and stars the crew of a fishing boat which catches fire off of Greenland. They then abandon ship and as they travel north, the countryside gets warmer until they reach the polar mountains where they are violently sucked into the underworld by a whirlwind. But as mentioned, even though there were sort of immediate literary responses to this, playing with this idea of accessing this interior world and the sort of fiction ideas that it put out there for people to run with, the literary culmination of his theory specifically, as they came to be known, was probably Simsonia. So Simsonia was a work of fiction, maybe, but probably not written by Sims himself. The main storyteller of our story is Captain Adam Seaborn, who is seemingly intentionally created as a kind of literary blueprint and as a new sort of genre on which future authors could base their own plots and possibly from which to copy passages. This was published, as we said, in 1820 and sort of existed as a point before strict copyright law as we know it existed. Works were often collaged together or just copied outright if they proved to be popular. So, so this work named Simsonia and explicitly linked to Sims theory seems like a kind of attempt to establish a genre of Simsian hollow earth 
fiction, seemingly aiming to build upon the theory as a literary work from the get-go. It inspired the genre of Simsian hollow earth fiction, of which examples are still being written to this day. Now there is the interesting question of whether Sims's theories survive to this day because of this publication and how amusing it is, or rather than the strength of his scientific views. There is obviously, as I've hinted about, this debate about whether the captain is a pseudonym for Sims himself, whether Sims's theories remain because they are linked to Sims fiction, or whether there is a question of whether one could really exist in the modern day without the other. They do seem to both enrich each other. Great immersive escapist works of fiction and these accessible and engaging scientific papers working alongside each other. Thank you for joining me in another part of our discussion on Hollow Earth. I hope you join me next week when we have a deep dive into the history. Find me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.